Good morning. The reading of God's Word this morning comes from John 1, 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. His fir- he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought them to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go for our children's worship or nursery, uh, our volunteers and staff will lead them across the way. But for those of you who are staying behind, uh, we're, we're, we're going to play a little game this morning to get started, okay? So, uh, so you can set down your notes for a second. You can, you can look up here. So here's the rules of the game. So I'm going to start a sentence, and I want you as a group to finish it out loud. You all seem hesitant in your liturgy this morning, so we, we, we still need a little bit of work here. So let's do a really simple one to get started up. You ready? Here we go. Mary had a little lamb. whose fleece was white as, okay, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb, all right, great, okay, let's let's kick it up a notch, we're going to go to John chapter 1, we've been memorizing this in some of our uh, classes, let's see how you'll do on this one, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the, and the word was, and the word, he was in the beginning, awesome, great work, okay, let's try another one, amazing grace, how, that saved. Okay, all right. Now we're going to go for the for the goal. All right, Ephesians two eight and nine. This is the ESV. So you might have been like me, memorizing the King James or New NIV. So this might be a little tricky. Here we go. For by grace you have been saved through, and this is not your own doing. It is the. That's right. Saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. Isaac Crowder, I think, gets uh, points for that one. He was he had the most gusto on his. His answer. Here's what I was looking to establish through this little exercise. The theological idea in Ephesians chapter 2 
that we are saved by grace through is second nature to you guys. I would actually sincerely doubt that any person who's a member of our church would say that we're saved by God because of good works or because of religion or because of anything but faith. I think that that language is just ingrained in you, at least I hope it is. This concept that we are saved through faith alone is very, very familiar to the culture of our church, to the culture of our denomination, really to the culture of Protestantism, probably in St. Tammany. But if I were to go a step beyond that, and say, okay, well, what is faith, though? This faith by which we are saved, how would you define it? In today's text, we see Jesus' first disciples believing for the first time. We see men receiving Jesus, believing in Jesus, receiving God's grace through faith. We see it in action. And as we observe them believing this morning, we're going to learn something about faith. And here's what we're going to learn. If you like to take notes, in the back of your worship guide, there's a few pages with uh, blanks in them. It's like two, three pages from the back. Here's your first blank. Here's what we're going to learn. Saving faith includes not only mental assent to truths about Jesus. Saving faith includes not only mental assent, A-S-S-E-N-E-N-T, A-S-S-E-N-T, mental assent to truths about Jesus, but also gut-level confidence, also known as trust. In Jesus as a person and in Jesus as God. So saving of faith is not just mental assent to some truths about Jesus. It's also gut-level confidence or trust in Jesus as a person and as God. So saving faith has two sides to it then. It does have this mental, I've got to believe some ideas about Jesus. But there's also something in your guts. I've got to, I've got to trust him. I would bet, because I know y'all. That if I were to corner each of you before the sermon and ask you, what is faith? The faith that saves us. I'd bet my bottom dollar, most if not all of us, would lean in that direction of mental assent. We'd say that saving faith means believing some ideas about Jesus. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for sin, that he was raised from the dead. That's how modern Christians tend to define faith. Faith means understanding these theological truths. Believing these theological truths. Understanding, believing the gospel, right? Mental ascent. Your head, right? I want to argue this morning that saving faith includes more than that. But there's a second element to be considered. Saving faith is mental assent to some facts about Jesus. But there's more to it than that, and the other side is confidence. So let's make this more real. Let's make this more practical, okay? When you personally or your family or somebody you love has an emergency, when you're in a moment of anxiety, pain, grief, confusion, doubt, anger. In those difficult, painful moments, where do you go? In those moments, what do you trust? In those moments, to whom do your hopes cling? 
What do you trust then when your back is against the wall, when the adrenaline is flowing, and perhaps more poignantly, one day in your moment of dying, whom will you trust then? What will you trust to give you comfort then? Where will you go then for deliverance, for help, and for comfort? It's good, essential, Important to believe some ideas about Jesus in your head, but do you also trust Jesus as a person and as God? And and here's what I mean by that. It might sound weird to talk about trusting Jesus as a person and as God. Here's what I mean. It's your next blank. Is your mental faith reflected in a restful confidence that Jesus is personally available to you? Is that mental faith converting into a confidence that Jesus is personally available to you That he cares for you. That's the next blank in there. And that he acts on your behalf as God. You have the confidence that Jesus is personally available to you. That he cares for you. And that he acts on your behalf as God. That's what I'm talking about. Do we trust him as a person? And do we trust him as God as a person? If I trust you, that means I can count on you as a person, right? You're going to show up for me. So we count on Jesus to, to, to be available, to care for us. But then, that when he makes himself available to us, when he cares for us, that he is willing to wield his godness for us. He's not just our friend. He's God himself making himself available, loving us, and, and wielding his divine power on our behalf. Do we trust him in that way? Because that's what we say we believe. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Confession, all these great statements of mentally what we believe, it reflects this truth. But has that information filtered down into the reality of our lives so that we trust Jesus when everything seems to be falling apart? Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, describes these kinds of gut-level questions in his astonishing hymn. Listen to this title, And Am I Born to Die? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, for time's sake, I'm not going to read the whole hymn this morning. I commend it to you. Uh, I, I, we might sing it one of these days. It's powerful. Here's the opening of the hymn. He says, and am I born, it's written in your worship guide, and am I born to die, to lay this body down, and must my trembling spirit fly into a world unknown, a land of deepest shade, unpierced by human thought, The dreary regions of the dead, where all things are forgotten. Soon as from earth I go, what will become of me? Eternal happiness or woe must then my portion be. Here's some brutal questions asked by Wesley. But have you considered the day when you will die? Have you thought about what you'll be feeling and fearing on that day. To whom you will go for trust. Where will you go for comfort? Here's your next blank. Every trial through which our faith endures is preparing us for the great trial that is death. When your car breaks down on the road, when it's hard to pay your taxes, when you get fired from your job, when your kid is sick, every trial is a preparation for that day. 
Because on that day, whom will you trust? Whom will you rest in? All of these trials are preparing us. So who are we trusting along the way? As we get ready for that day. Because if you can endure this one trial, it makes you a little bit stronger, right? And if you can endure that trial, it makes you a little stronger, right? Because we're preparing for that great trial. And on that day, on the day I die, which may be today, I need more than a Rolodex of facts about Jesus. I need guts and a heart that are trained through trial after trial after trial to turn to him. Because saving faith doesn't just ask, what do you believe in your head? What do you believe in your guts? What do you trust? When you're back against the wall, indeed, the eventual wall of death, how are we going to respond? Will we flee to Christ then? Will we believe? That's not just an intellectual jockeying with ideas about resurrection and incarnation and heaven. This is called putting all your bets on one horse. That's casting yourself really and truly and fully on the mercies of Jesus. Now, lest the terror of that day, the day of our mortal expiration, lest the terror of that day just make us all crumble into ash this morning. (laughs) Today's text speaks great comfort into this unnerving idea. That saving faith, faith that saves us, is more than mental assent. It's also this gut-level confidence. This text speaks great comfort into the concerns that that might draw out for us. So here are two comforting revelations about saving faith from our text. And the first comfort we find is this. Your next blank. Saving faith is always incomplete faith. Saving faith is always incomplete faith. So we're now on the third consecutive day. In John chapter 1. So John is telling the account of Jesus' life and ministry. And as verse 29 begins, it says, the next day. So what happened on the previous day? Let's flash back to last week. So last week we saw John the Baptist point out out Jesus and says, this guy is the Lamb of God. And he's come for two things. He's come to take out sin from the world from top to bottom. And he's come to give you the Holy Spirit to transform you. So that's what happened on the previous day. So what happens after John makes this announcement about Jesus? Let's look at our text. John 1, verse 35. The next day, again John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, he's back. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Whoa! There's a huge truth bomb that Andrew drops on his brother. He says, We found him, Simon! The one we've been waiting for for thousands of years. The Messiah, the Christ is here. What a remarkable statement of faith. Andrew's the first to believe it. He's the first to say it out loud. It's remarkable reality that Jesus is the Messiah. But then what looks, look at what happens on the next day. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael 
and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. Boom! Faith again. We see it. Philip publicly professes to his friend Nathaniel that Jesus of Nazareth is the great prophet that Moses had prophesied about in Deuteronomy. That this Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one the prophets talked about, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, right? This statement of faith is amazing. The Old Testament is being fulfilled, Nathaniel, in this one person, Jesus. Faith coming to bear. Let's continue on. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. This text is filled with faith after faith after faith. Yet from Nathanael, we hear perhaps the most pointed statement of faith yet. One that sums up all the other's faith and even goes beyond them when he professes that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. This is the height of all the theological statements that are made here. And in fact, that's what John, the the gospel writer, wants us to believe. We saw that a few weeks ago. How does his book end in John chapter 20? He says that he wrote this book, reader, so that you would believe what? That Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. Nathaniel here believes what John wants you to believe, right? Big moment. It's amazing to see Jesus' disciples believing in such a remarkable way just days or even minutes after believing him. But let me ask you a question. Is the faith of any of these men complete yet? Do they at this moment believe everything about Jesus that they will eventually believe? Not at all. Their faith is remarkably incomplete. And Jesus points it out. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, we don't know what happened under the fig tree. It was apparently a a, a private thing that only Nathaniel knew. The fact that Jesus knew what happened under this fig tree demonstrated that Jesus had remarkable divine insight and power. But Jesus tells Nathaniel, "Eh, that's only the beginning. You think that's impressive? You believe because I saw you under the fig tree? Jesus goes on, Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. You're going to see a door to heaven opened. And like Jacob's ladder, I will be the portal, the means between heaven and earth. You think it's exciting that I'm the son of God and the king of Israel? Wait until I open heaven to the whole world. They may be with God. Here's what I'm getting at. In the faith of these disciples, we see real faith. 
There's nothing here that indicates that this is not real faith, saving faith, but it's incomplete faith. And let's talk about both sides of that, the head and the guts. Faith is, on the one hand, mental assent, intellectual understanding of Jesus and his gospel. And do these guys understand everything there is to know about Jesus? Of course not. These guys don't know the half of it. Andrew and Philip are are on fire. These guys are already out evangelizing. They're the first people out there telling other people about Jesus. But they don't understand substitutionary atonement and how Jesus connects with that. They don't know he's going to die on a cross. They don't know about the resurrection. They don't know that the spirit will be given to them and will transform their life. So on the mental and intellectual side, they know very, very little. Their mental grasp of Jesus and the gospel is less developed than the youngest children in our church. These guys know very, very little. Their faith, though incomplete though, is still saving faith. What about the other side of it, this gut-level trust and confidence? How are they doing on that side of things? We see a little bit, a little bit of confidence, a little bit of trust. How well do they trust Jesus? Well, they don't trust him as God yet, but they trust him as a person. They're willing to follow him as a rabbi. They, They crash at his place. They walk away from their occupations to follow Jesus. So their trust, it's there, but it's certainly minimal. It's incomplete. Nathaniel's trust, which we don't even know technically if he's one of the 12 disciples. He might be Bartholomew, which is a name in, in other gospels. We're not really sure, but Nathaniel's faith does go a step further than the others. When he calls Jesus the son of God and the king of Israel, that is a massive theological statement. But even then, he probably doesn't really fully understand what he's confessed. He doesn't know just how closely Jesus is connected with God the Father. He doesn't yet know that Jesus is the Word who was with God and who was God and who was with God in the beginning, that he was a part of creating all things. So their gut-level confidence and their mental ascent, both of them are incomplete. It's real, it's salvific, but it's underdeveloped and immature at this point. That's a comfort to me. That should be a comfort to all of us. We can take comfort in this for ourselves as we struggle to to grapple with the deep truths of the faith. We can take comfort in this as we do doubt and struggle in our moments of trials and emergencies, right? We can take comfort in this for our little children as their young faith is still in development even as they get older. We can take comfort for the mentally disabled folks that we love as their ability to understand is weaker than many or perhaps as their ability to remember deteriorates. All of us have more to know. All of us have more to understand and believe. All of us could trust him more. We all struggle to trust Jesus. Even sometimes we doubt that he cares and that he's willing to wield his divine power for us. Saving faith is always incomplete faith, regardless of the person, regardless of the situation. And truth be told, when your faith is complete, it'll be sight. You'll be with Jesus and your faith will be replaced with rejoicing. Saving faith is always incomplete faith. But that's not the only comfort for us in this wonderful text. Here's a second comfort for us. It's your next blank. Saving faith is not perfect faith, but persevering faith. Saving faith is not perfect faith, but persevering faith. 
Even if you haven't read the Gospel according to John recently, a lot of you know how these men's lives play out. These men will struggle in their faith, won't they? And some of them, Simon especially, whom Jesus renames Cephas or Peter here, Simon will fail remarkably. These guys will regularly not understand Jesus. They won't know what he's talking about. They will fail to obey him. They'll fail to trust him. They will have ups and downs in this story. But here's the essential question. Who will persevere? So Simon. Simon fails and falters, yes. But his faith doesn't die on the rocks. His flickering faith prevails and perseveres. We can't say the same for Judas, whom we haven't seen yet in the text. Saving faith is not perfect faith. It's persevering faith. It lasts. It doesn't eventually give way to despair, dissipation, and abandonment of Christ. So what am I suggesting? You might be connecting the dots already. Am I suggesting that you can have faith and then lose faith? That's exactly what I'm saying. And I realize that raises all kinds of questions like, isn't a person once saved, always saved? Or can you lose your salvation? Or if a person has professed faith with their mouth and believed in their heart, isn't that enough? And I know we want easy answers for those questions. And I know those questions are born out of great grief. Because you have people that you love, children perhaps, other loved ones, who've walked away from the faith entirely. What of their eternal fate? Here's what I'm trying to get across. These questions that we ask are relatively foreign to Scripture. When you read the Bible, some believe, persevere, and are saved. Others believe for a while and fall away. The faith doesn't stick. And I bet all of you have known people that this has been the case. They at one time professed Christ, but they no longer do. And we try to comfort ourselves with phrases like, once saved, always saved. We say things like, well, thank God they made that profession of faith at Vacation Bible School. But the Bible doesn't talk that way. Let me put it as plainly as I can. Here's your next blank. Our hope and sense of eternal security should not come from the quality of our faith or how steady it seems, but from the object of our faith and from the perseverance of the Spirit's work in us. This is where we find hope. This is where we find eternal security, the object of our faith and the perseverance of the Spirit's work in us. So why can we be confident that Simon Peter will be in heaven? Not because he was a stand-up guy with a perfect faith. Simon was all kinds of messed up. Even after the resurrection and the, the church is moving forward, he was still screwing things up and getting in fights with other apostles because he was a coward about the gospel and about whom he would associate with. He was a people pleaser. I have no confidence in Peter's faith or in the steadiness of Peter's heart. But I am confident we'll see Peter in heaven one day. Why? Why do I have confidence we'll see Peter? Because he always came back to Jesus. And because I can see the Holy Spirit changing his life. Can't you? What about Judas? I have no expectation I'll see Judas in heaven. Why not? He never came back to Jesus. He gave himself over to despair. And I don't see growth in Judas. I see a reversion not only to who he was before he knew Jesus, but to something worse. We're good Calvinists here at FPC. We believe in all five points of Calvinism. I bet some others here would probably add even more points if you could. 
Who remembers what the P stands for in TULIP, in the five points of Calvinism? I'm glad somebody had an answer. Otherwise, we're about to have a five-week sermon series on the five points of Calvinism. Perseverance of the saints. That's right. Now, John Calvin didn't come up with that phrase. Rather, the Synod of Dort did in their meetings in Dortrecht, Netherlands in 1618 to 1619. And how did they define this phrase, perseverance of the saints? I'm going to read a really lengthy section from that document. It's printed in your worship guide. You're going to follow along because this is the longest quote I've ever read in worship. uh, But that's not Bible. Um, because I think it so well encapsulates what I believe is the biblical teaching on perseverance. So follow along as I read. Those people whom God, according to his purpose, calls into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and regenerates by the Holy Spirit, God also sets free from the dominion and slavery of sin, though not entirely from the flesh and from the body of sin as long as they're in this life. The power of God strengthening and preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh. Yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that they cannot be led astray by the desires of the flesh and give in to them. By such monstrous sins, however, they greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time until after they have returned to the right way by genuine repentance, God's fatherly face shines upon them. For God, who is rich in mercy, according to the unchangeable purpose of election, does not take the Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does God let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification or commit the sin which leads to death, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and plunge themselves entirely forsaken by God into eternal ruin. For in the first place, God preserves in those saints when they fall the imperishable seed from which they have been born again, lest it perish or be dislodged. Secondly, By his word and spirit, God certainly and effectively renews them to repentance so that they have a heartfelt and godly sorrow for the sins they have committed. Seek and obtain through faith and with a contrite heart forgiveness in the blood of the mediator. Experience again the grace of a reconciled God. Through faith, adore God's mercies. And from then on, more eagerly work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I go to all that effort to read a huge chunk from the Canons of Dort. Never read that aloud uh, before. Because I want to be immensely careful how I communicate this and how you think about it. It's not simple, but it's very important, and it has to do with you. It has to do with your eternal state and the people that you love. So if I was going to distill it down as best I could, I'd put it this way. Here's your last three blanks. We don't persevere. God's Spirit perseveres within us if we are his it ain't in you it's not you who perseveres if you have god's holy spirit he will persevere in you and at least the next one the spirit will not allow us to persevere in sin and unrepentance if you have the spirit if you have been regenerated the spirit will not let you continue in sin and unrepentance he's going to grab you and drag you back kicking and screaming if need be hebrews chapter 12 tells us if you are god's son he will discipline you he will call you to repentance the weight and the guilt and the shame of your sin will bring you back to him in your last blank the power of the cross is big enough to crush sin's dominion in us 
power of the cross is big enough to crush sin's dominion in us. Again, this is starting to play off some of the things we were talking about last week. What we believe about ourselves, and we tend to to view ourselves as inescapably tied to our sin and inescapably tied to our flesh. We can't move forward. All we expect from ourselves is one step forward and four steps back. The gospel's stronger than that. You have God in you. And if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, he will not abandon you. You will come back to Jesus in repentance. And I know you have a lot of questions already popping up in your head. What about the person who followed Jesus for a long time, publicly denies him, and dies shortly thereafter? What about the person who denies Jesus their whole life and then makes a deathbed confession? What about the child who makes a heartfelt profession of faith, gets hooked on heroin later in life, goes wild and dies in the gutter? What of their soul? Two very brief responses. First, those are not theological questions. Those are pastoral questions. There's no way that I could answer those questions neatly and cleanly here and actually be telling you the truth. Really and truly, there's no answer I can give right now to those questions except this. God is abundantly gracious. And he is completely just. And he can't abandon either of those. That's the first response to those questions. But second, you and I can't know what's going on in other people's hearts. We saw it earlier in one of the texts. We saw Jesus knows what's going on in people's hearts. But we don't know what transpires between individuals and God in their life. Only God knows. And here's the fact. I'm actually not even talking about those people this morning. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. How can you have confidence that you are his, that you are saved, that you will persevere into the end? You who have doubts and who have sins and who have struggles, who are so incomplete and so imperfect, how can you know that you'll be with God one day when you die? Too many Christians, many of you, struggle with a sense of eternal security because you think you sin too much or you doubt too much or you aren't like this one Christian that you really admire. You, 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 you. What of Christ? What of the Spirit, the object of our faith and the one who lives within us, the one who perseveres us truly? It's not the saint who perseveres. It is the Spirit who perseveres in us. The Spirit will not let you go. It is the Spirit who will not abandon us to sin in hell. It is the hound of heaven hot on our heels, causing causing our souls to burn with agony and shame if we will not believe and return to Christ in repentance. Saving faith is incomplete. Saving faith is often wavering, but it perseveres. Why? Because God is at work in the lives of the regenerate. God, I tell you, the one who created all things, he has committed himself to the recreating and renewing of you, Christian. It is in him that we find comfort and hope and peace, that he will pursue us. Now, we're going to return to this text next week. And we're going to consider the faith of these men more. We're going to look at what does it mean to persevere. And as we persevere in faith, that means we struggle, and as we repent, and as we sin, and as we come back, what do we want that life of faith to look like. But I want to end today with the great comfort of this text. 
consider your own faith. What confidence do you have that your faith will continue to the end? That you are truly his, that you are a child of God? Well, there's only two questions with which I will respond. Number one, whom do you trust today? All we got is today. Whom do you trust today? Do you trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the one who was crucified and raised for your salvation? Do you assent to that mentally? Even though your faith is riddled with incompletion, do you believe? Then take comfort, brother. Take comfort, sister. I have no reason to doubt that you belong to Jesus. Number one. Number two, do you see any growth in your life? Any change, any transformation from whom you used to be more into the image of Jesus? And if you look at yourself and say, I don't, I don't see it. Talk to a Christian that knows you. (laughs) Often we need other people to believe the gospel for us and to show us the growth in our lives. Can you see the proof of the Spirit in you? Saving faith is incomplete faith. It's imperfect imperfect faith. It it was incomplete and imperfect from the earliest days of Jesus' ministry, and it continues even now. So find comfort in this, O doubting soul. You have a Savior who loves you. You have a Holy Spirit who is committed to your perseverance. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your works. Trust in Him. Pray. Father, I confess... For years, this has been a, 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 a problem for me. With my sin, with my doubt, with my struggles, how can I know that I'm really saved? How can I know that my heart has been changed? Thank you for this glorious truth that it ain't us. It wasn't our works before. It's not our works now. It's not even the quality of our faith. It's all you. And so, Father, I pray that our doubts and our fears and our anxieties about this and about every trial that we have, that it would be overwhelmed with deep trust in the one who's revealed to us in the gospel. We assent to the good news of the gospel. Help us now to trust it, to live every day informed by it. So, Lord, I want to pray for every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl who's here right now. They would truly rest in Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would grip them so tightly that they could do nothing but turn to you in repentance, that they would not continue in sin and unbelief, but that they would trust in Christ and Him crucified and that they would live every day, beginning today, fully for your glory. Holy Spirit, pursue us. We pray in the name of Jesus.